Chapters 29 and 30 of John Barleycorn or Alcoholic Memoirs by Jack London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 29 after my long sickness my drinking continued to be convivial i drank when others drank and i was with them but imperceptibly my need for alcohol took form and began to grow it was not a body need i boxed swam sailed rode horses lived in the open and errantly healthful life and passed life insurance examinations with flying colors in its inception now that i look back upon it this need for alcohol was a mental need a nerve need a good spirits need how can i explain it was something like this physiologically from the standpoint of palate and stomach alcohol was as it had always been repulsive it tasted no better than beer did when i was five than bitter claret did when i was seven when i was alone writing or studying i had no need for it but i was growing old or wise or both or senile as an alternative when i was in company i was less pleased less excited with the things said and done erstwhile worthwhile fun and stunts seemed no longer worthwhile and it was a torment to listen to the insipidities and stupidities of women to the pompous arrogant sayings of the little half-baked men it is the penalty one pays for reading the books too much or for being oneself a fool in my case it does not matter which was my trouble the trouble itself was the fact. The condition of the fact was mine. For me, the life and light and sparkle of human intercourse were dwindling. I had climbed too high among the stars, or maybe I had slept too hard. Yet I was not hysterical, nor in any way overwrought. My pulse was normal. My heart was an amazement of excellence to the insurance doctors. My lungs threw the said doctors into ecstasies. I wrote a thousand words every day. I was punctiliously exact in dealing with all the affairs of life that fell to my lot. I exercised in joy and gladness. I slept at night like a babe. But well as soon as i got out in the company of others i was driven to melancholy and spiritual tears i could neither laugh with nor at the solemn utterances of men i esteemed ponderous asses nor could i laugh nor engage in my old-time lightsome persiflage with the silly superficial chatterings of women who underneath all their silliness and softness 
were as primitive, direct, and deadly in their pursuit of biological destiny as the monkeys' women were before they shed their furry coats and replaced them with the furs of other animals. And I was not pessimistic. I swear I was not pessimistic. I was merely bored. I had seen the same show too often, listened too often to the same songs and the same jokes. I knew too much about the box office receipts. I knew the cogs of the machinery behind the scenes so well that the posing on the stage and the laughter and the song could not drown the creaking of the wheels behind. It doesn't pay to go behind the scenes and see the angel-voiced tenor beat his wife. Well, I'd been behind, and I was paying for it. Or else I was a fool. It is immaterial which was my situation. The situation is what counts, and the situation was that social intercourse for me was getting painful and difficult. On the other hand, it must be stated that on rare occasions, on very rare occasions, I did meet rare souls, or fools like me, with whom I could spend magnificent hours among the stars, or in the paradise of fools. I was married to a rare soul, or a fool, who never bored me, and who was always a source of new and unending surprise and delight. But I could not spend all my hours solely in her company, nor would it have been fair nor wise to compel her to spend all her hours in my company. Besides, I had written a string of successful books, and society demands some portion of the recreative hours of a fellow that writes books. And any normal man, of himself and his needs, demands some hours of his fellow men. And now we begin to come to it. How to face the social intercourse game with the glamour gone. John Barleycorn the ever-patient one had waited a quarter of a century and more for me to reach my hand out in need of him. His thousand tricks had failed, thanks to my constitution and good luck, but he had more tricks in his bag. A cocktail or two, or several, I found, cheered me up for the foolishness of foolish people a cocktail or several before dinner enabled me to laugh wholeheartedly at things which had long since ceased being laughable the cocktail was a prod a spur a kick to my jaded mind and bored spirits it recrudesced the laughter and the song and put a lilt into my own imagination so that I could laugh and sing and say foolish things with the liveliest of them, or platitudes with verve and intensity to the satisfaction of the pompous, mediocre ones who knew no other way to talk. 
a poor companion without a cocktail i became a very good companion with one i achieved a false exhilaration drugged myself to merriment and the thing began so imperceptibly that i old intimate of john barleycorn never dreamed whither it was leading me i was beginning to call for music and wine soon i should be calling for madder music and more wine it was at this time i became aware of waiting with expectancy for the pre-dinner cocktail i wanted it and i was conscious that i wanted it i remember while war corresponding in the far east of being irresistibly attracted to a certain home besides accepting all invitations to dinner i made a point of dropping in almost every afternoon now the hostess was a charming woman but it was not for her sake that i was under her roof so frequently it happened that she made by far the finest cocktail procurable in that large city where drink-mixing on the part of the foreign population was indeed an art up at the club down at the hotels and in other private houses no such cocktails were created her cocktails were subtle they were masterpieces they were the least repulsive to the palate and carried the most kick and yet i desired her cocktails only for sociability's sake to key myself to sociable moods when i rode away from that city across hundreds of miles of rice fields and mountains and through months of campaigning and on with the victorious japanese into manchuria i did not drink several bottles of whisky were always to be found on the backs of my pack-horses yet i never broached a bottle for myself never took a drink by myself and never knew a desire to take such a drink oh if a white man came into my camp i opened a bottle and we drank together according to the way of men just as he would open a bottle and drink with me if i came into his camp i carried that whisky for social purposes and i so charged it up to my expense account to the newspaper for which i worked only in retrospect can i mark the almost imperceptible growth of my desire there were little hints then that i did not take little straws in the wind that i did not see little incidents the gravity of which i did not realize for instance for some years it had been my practice each winter to cruise for six or eight weeks on san francisco bay my stout sloop yacht the spray had a comfortable cabin and a coal stove a korean boy did the cooking and i usually took a friend or so along to share the joys of the cruise also i took my machine along and did my thousand words a day 
On the particular trip I have in mind, Cloudsley and Toddy came along. This was Toddy's first trip. On previous trips, Cloudsley had elected to drink beer, so I had kept the yacht supplied with beer and had drunk beer with him. But on this cruise, the situation was different. Toddy was so nicknamed because of his diabolical cleverness in concocting toddies. So I brought whiskey along, a couple of gallons. Alas, many another gallon I bought, for Cloudsley and I got into the habit of drinking a certain hot toddy that actually tasted delicious going down and that carried the most exhilarating kick imaginable. I liked those toddies. I grew to look forward to the making of them. We drank them regularly, one before breakfast, one before dinner, one before supper, and a final one when we went to bed. We never got drunk, but I will say that four times a day we were very genial. And when, in the middle of the cruise, Toddy was called back to San Francisco on business, Cloudsley and I saw to it that the Korean boy mixed toddies regularly for us according to formula. But that was only on the boat. Back on the land, in my house, I took no breakfast eye-opener, no bed-going nightcap, and I haven't drunk hot toddies since, and that was many a year ago. But the point is, I liked those toddies. The geniality of which they were provocative was marvelous. They were eloquent proselytites for John Barleycorn in their own small, insidious way. They were tickles of the something destined to grow into daily and deadly desire. And I didn't know, never dreamed, I, who had lived with John Barleycorn for so many years, and laughed at all his unavailing attempts to win me. Chapter 30 Part of the process of recovering from my long sickness was to find delight in little things, in things unconnected with books and problems, in play, in games of tag in the swimming pool, in flying kites, in fooling with horses, in working out mechanical puzzles. As a result, I grew tired of the city. On the ranch, in the valley of the moon, I found my paradise. I gave up living in cities. All the cities held for me were music, the theater, and Turkish baths. And all went well with me. I worked hard, played hard and was very happy. I read more fiction and less fact. I did not study a tithe as much as I had studied in the past. I still took an interest in the fundamental problems of existence, but it was a very cautious interest, 
for I had burned my fingers that time I clutched at the veils of truth and wrestled them from her. There was a bit of lie in this attitude of mine, a bit of hypocrisy, but the lie and the hypocrisy were those of a man desiring to live. I deliberately blinded myself to what I took to be the savage interpretation of biological fact. After all, I was merely forswearing a bad habit, foregoing a bad frame of mind. And I repeat, I was very happy. And, I add, that in all my days, measuring them with cold, considerative judgment, this was, far and away beyond all other periods, the happiest period of my life. But the time was at hand, rhymeless and reasonless, so far as I can see, when I was to begin to pay for my score of years of dallying with John Barleycorn. Occasionally guests journeyed to the ranch and remained a few days. Some did not drink. But to those who did drink, the absence of all alcohol on the ranch was a hardship. I could not violate my sense of hospitality by compelling them to endure this hardship. I ordered in a stock for my guests. I was never interested enough in cocktails to know how they were made. So I got a barkeeper in Oakland to make them in bulk and ship them to me. When I had no guests, I didn't drink. But I began to notice, when I finished my morning's work, that I was glad if there was a guest, for then I could drink a cocktail with him. Now I was so clean of alcohol that even a single cocktail was provocative of pitch. A single cocktail would glow the mind and tickle a laugh for the few minutes prior to sitting down to table and starting the delightful process of eating. On the other hand, such was the strength of my stomach, of my alcoholic resistance, that the single cocktail was only the glimmer of a glow, the faintest tickle of a laugh. One day, a friend frankly and shamelessly suggested a second cocktail. I drank the second with him. The glow was appreciably longer and warmer, the laughter deeper and more resonant. One does not forget such experiences. Sometime I almost think that it was because I was so very happy that I started on my real drinking. I remember one day Charmian and I took a long ride over the mountains on our horses. The servants had been dismissed for the day, and we returned late at night to a jolly chafing-dish supper. Oh, it was good to be alive that night while the supper was preparing, the two of us alone in the kitchen, I personally was at the top of life. Such things as the books and ultimate truth 
did not exist. My body was gloriously healthy and healthily tired from the long ride. It had been a splendid day. The night was splendid. I was with the woman who was my mate, picnicking in gleeful abandon. I had no troubles. The bills were all paid, and a surplus of money was rolling in on me. The future ever widened before me. And right there, in the kitchen, delicious things bubbled in the chafing dish, our laughter bubbled, and my stomach was keen with a most delicious edge of appetite. I felt so good that somehow, somewhere, in me arose an insatiable greed to feel better. I was so happy that I wanted to pitch my happiness even higher, and I knew the way. Ten thousand contacts with John Barleycorn had taught me. Several times I wandered out of the kitchen to the cocktail bottle, and each time I left it diminished by one man's size cocktail. The result was splendid. I wasn't jingled, I wasn't lighted up, but I was warmed. I glowed. My happiness was pyramided. Munificent as life was to me, I added to that munificence. It was a great hour, one of my greatest. But I paid for it long afterwards, as you will see. One does not forget such experiences, and in human stupidity cannot be brought to realize that there is no immutable law which decrees that same things shall produce same results. For they don't. Else would the thousandth pipe of opium be provocative of similar delights to the first else would one cocktail instead of several produce an equivalent glow after a year of cocktails one day just before i ate midday dinner after my morning's writing was done when i had no guest i took a cocktail by myself thereafter when there were no guests I took this daily pre-dinner cocktail. And right there, John Barleycorn had me. I was beginning to drink regularly. I was beginning to drink alone. And I was beginning to drink not for hospitality's sake, not for the sake of the taste, but for the effect of the drink. I wanted that daily pre-dinner cocktail, and it never crossed my mind that there was any reason I should not have it. I paid for it. I could pay for a thousand cocktails each day if I wanted. And what was a cocktail? One cocktail. To me, who had on so many occasions, for so many years, 
had drunk inordinate quantities of stiffer stuff and been unharmed. The program of my ranch life was as follows. Each morning at 8.30, having been reading or correcting proofs in bed since four or five, I went to my desk. Odds and ends of correspondence and notes occupied me till nine, and at nine sharp, invariably, I began my writing. By eleven, sometimes a few minutes earlier or later, my thousand words were finished. Another half hour at cleaning up my desk, and my day's work was done, so that eleven thirty I got into a hammock under the trees with my mail bag and the morning newspaper. At twelve thirty I ate dinner, and in the afternoon I swam and rode. One morning, at eleven thirty, before I got into the hammock, I took a cocktail. I repeated this on subsequent mornings, of course, taking another cocktail just before I ate at twelve-thirty. Soon I found myself seated at my desk in the midst of my thousand words, looking forward to that eleven-thirty cocktail. At last, now I was thoroughly conscious that I desired alcohol. But what of it? I wasn't afraid of John Barleycorn. I had associated with him too long. I was wise in the matter of drink. I was discreet. Never again would I drink to excess. I knew the dangers and the pitfalls of John Barleycorn, the various ways by which he had tried to kill me in the past. But all that was past, long past. Never again would I drink myself to stupefaction. Never again would I get drunk. All I wanted, and all I would take, was just enough to glow and warm me, to kick geniality alive in me, and put laughter in my throat, and stir the maggots of imagination slightly in my brain. Oh, I was thoroughly master of myself and of John Barleycorn. End of chapter 30